This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, this is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg Today, Jason. One that says President Trump, yep, does indeed care what others think globally and in the financial markets. Let's bring in Saleh Mosin. She is our U.S. Treasury reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio here in New York, along with Jill Weber, editor of the magazine. And Jill, you shot out to our producer, Paul Brennan. You're like... We got to do this story because remember what Peter Coy did. I'll, I'll bring it back to Salea actually, though, because it was her idea. So thanks to her. Um, yeah, back uh, a couple of weeks ago, months ago now, we did a, a Trump slump cover as the markets yeah. were were reeling, and we saw a lot of red. And so we played with his big red tie and made it a little bit longer than usual, all the way so it was spilling on the floor. Um, and and it really gets to this thing that I think Salea's story today is ultimately about, which is he is fixated on the stock market and that relates back to the trade deal right which i think is really interesting so Slay, what, what did you hear so what we're hearing is that trump has told his uh trade negotiators that he wants a deal with china because he wants a rally in stock markets we've seen for the past two years more than two years that he definitely sees the stock market as a barometer for the success of his own economic policies where when markets are rallying he's pointing at himself saying this is what i've done for you Uh, now that markets are definitely definitely nervous about all the uncertainty that's coming from the trade friction between the from the world's two largest economies Trump is thinking, I need to make these people happy. I want to rally. I want to be able to come out with a big win and say that giant jump in equities is coming right. from so me. He, he's actually said that to his advisors. He has. I mean, his advisors know that before you enter the Oval Office, you should know what are stock markets doing right <laughs> now because he will ask you. So, Saleha, you, you understand the inner workings of the Treasury Department better than anyone. You also understand these tensions among the president's advisors around this trade deal with China. Uh, Where's Team Mnuchin uh, in in all of this, and how are they trying to get the president what he wants? So that is actually another Bloomberg Business Week cover from a couple of months ago when we wrote about Stephen Mnuchin and how he kind of uses the idea of, I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm not going to take it to the public and publicly negotiate for uh, cooler trade talks, you know, dial down the temperature with China. Let's do this in a calm way. He decides to work behind closed doors and talk to Trump directly. Now, that is what we see him doing now. We don't have Mnuchin constantly out on TV or in, or in interviews yeah. or tweeting about the po- the possibility of a deal. He is quietly working the back channels and showing. I mean, he Treasury is among the people that is making the case to Trump that if you want a better stock market, you want stock market uh, participants to, to mellow out. You need to show them that you can have a deal. But that also speaks to this divide within sort of the White House inner circle, right, where you've got that side of uh, of the aisle versus the China hawks, like the Robert Lighthizers. The Lighthizers, yeah. Who are really advocating for this tougher stance on China. And it seems a little bit, based on some of our other reporting, that maybe, maybe uh, you know, the Trump-Lighthizer thing, like, 
is cooling because Trump is maybe listening more to the Mnuchin side of the aisle. Well, you have to kind of love what Secretary Mnuchin has done because look at in terms of the administration, the Trump administration, a few years in and how many of them are gone already and Mnuchin has survived. He is one of the original cast of characters in the cabinet right now that is still there. He knows how to survive. He was on thin ice when markets were dropping and going mm-hmm. so much volatility at the end of last year. He was on thin ice. And I think what has happened is that he has decided, look, if I'm going to be on the line when markets drop, then I got to tell you what you need to do to make the reverse happen. And how much concern is there that you guys are hearing, you know, you, Saleh, and, and, and Joel, as you talk to, you know, the other uh, writers and, and editors we have at our disposal, um, you know, how much worry is there that they could come up with a weak deal or agree to a weak deal just to get a win on the board? I think I think that's the 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 big kind of concern is like look this trade war has been going on for a year, like let's make sure that we get something we want. That's certainly one side of it, and the other side is like don't lose perspective. We we've, we've probably been in this, these trenches. We've gotten something that we want. Maybe we don't need everything, right? So so I think that's sort of the ultimate tension here. He's also got to feel frustrated coming off of North Korea, right? And that abruptly ending. And he is kind of looking for a win right now. Absolutely. 2020, the presidential campaign has started, as we saw with his CPAC speech on Saturday when he hugged the American flag. We have seen that they are. he is starting his campaign focus. Right. The other thing is that what we're looking at is that markets aren't as binary as Trump thinks that they are. And Trump is I, not... You know, I love that thought. Yeah, yeah, and Trump himself is not as binary as markets think that he is. I mean, markets, if I, I spent this this last couple of days here in New York talking to investors, and they think there's a, uh, there's a deal or no deal, but there is a vast gray area that Washington lives in, particularly Trump. He's made that gray area bigger. He could say that there's a deal, but there's zero substance. He could create a deal and then walk away with it, or he could just walk away from the negotiating table, which is something that... Um, Secretary of State Michael Pompeo said this week that it is possible that Trump walks away from negotiating with China the same way he walked away from North Korea. All right. Later. Tell us more what you're hearing from investors, because I'm always fascinated to hear, you know, Mnuchin, he's a very successful hedge fund guy. He made his way. What do the investors that you talk to think of his performance? What do they think of the president? I mean, Mnuchin's performance, it's, you know, he has an audience of one, the secretary. Yeah. He's trying to Great keep point. his job. And so he is just, I think markets are relieved that he is the person who is, Mnuchin is the secretary, that it's not someone who's really volatile himself. And then it's not someone who's just going to quit very quickly. He knew what he was getting into. Someone like Gary Cohn did not know exactly yeah. what he was getting into with Trump. So mm. stability um, at you know, in Treasury is very important. You oversee a fifteen trillion dollar Treasuries market, not to mention a lot of other things. As far as Trump's performance, I mean, what I'm hearing from investors is that this is the flawed idea in markets that short term gain, long term pain. So if he cuts a deal with China tomorrow, right, long term, that's not good for. Profitability. I also find it interesting when he owned the casinos, he didn't seem to care too much about what investors thought, right, or the markets, what the kind of pressure that they were putting on him. But now he's focused on the markets. It's, yes. It's the measuring stick. <laughs> Saleh Mosin, And we should point out Great uh, President Trump just saying uh, at the White House while he was greeting former U- U.S. hostage in Yemen, Danny Birch, that, quote, there will be a good deal with China or no deal at all. There you have it. Jill Weber, thank you as well. It's a small world. 
on Bloomberg. Small cap stocks are outpacing large caps this year. Let's get a look uh, once again at the small cap world. Eric Marshall back with us. He's president and director of research at Hodges Capital Management. Two billion in assets under management. Based in Dallas, made his way to our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. New York, nice to be talking with you again. It's good to be here. So small cap universe, they've had quite a bounce back, as did most of the equity universe. Tell me, take me back to December. Were you guys picking up some shares? On the sell. Yeah, we, we really saw some very compelling opportunities back in December. And we really feel like the market uh, was really had an absence of buying. And with so much investing now occurring on a passive basis, there are fewer and fewer really fundamental value-driven investors out there, which are usually the incremental buyers of stocks when you have those type of corrections like we had at the end of the year. Some of it was tax loss selling. But as that selling pressure really persisted, uh, it really created opportunities for managers that really knew what was going on in the individual fundamentals of the businesses that we invested in. So we actually took that as an opportunity to consolidate our portfolio, really add to our high conviction ideas that we felt like were being the most mispriced in the market. So I want to get to some of those ideas. But first, I I want to ask you about something that uh, you shared with us uh, before you came in, which is you guys go deep on your research team. And, you know, you went in, looked at uh, a thousand company uh, management teams, I think, and you know, got all these contacts. What do you take away from that? Because that's a lot of legwork to sort of talk to people and understand kind of what's moving them, what their uh, hopes and dreams are. What you what you get from them? Well, what we found, uh, like you're right, our, our research team, we contacted about a thousand publicly traded companies over this past year, made about a total of about 2,600 different contacts, and we really found that for the most part, uh, corporate balance sheets are in they're more leveraged than they were a year ago at this time, mm. but they are relatively manageable, and we still see relatively good earnings power here in those underlying businesses for 2019, albeit at a slower growth rate than we saw over the past year. Uh, But we still see a relatively good level of optimism. And we also see really small caps as really being the one area of the market where you can really find the most inefficiencies right now. So when you say that you had some high, con- you know, high conviction ideas, you found the sell-off, some compelling ideas uh, in that December sell-off. So I'm assuming you were putting money to work, and I'm curious where. Because yeah, you said so, you also consolidated positions. So, so what we, we found, like a lot of the areas of the market, really the, a lot of the deep, deep cyclical stocks, they got hurt the worst. So some of the areas such as materials, uh, we added to positions uh, like Eagle Materials, uh, cement producer, mm-hmm. uh, commercial metals, uh, a, a rebar manufacturer, as well as some of the beaten down semiconductor stocks, hmm. Cypress Semiconductor uh, is is another one, as well as some of the uh, some software companies, as well as some of the regional banks. The regional banks especially got hit, right. and that's been one of the the areas, even with the current. Uh, sell-off that we've been having over the last few days as the market consolidates, those stocks are actually holding up pretty well because they really got in an oversold condition 
back during that fourth quarter sell-off. And why did why did people fall out of love with uh, regional banks? They were just feeling bad about things in I general think there was and a, that was close to hand. A real concern that the the Fed was going to overshoot on interest rates and you were going to see those net interest margins wow. really contract. You remember back then there was a lot of concern about an inverted yield curve, what was going to happen there. Wow, we haven't talked about that in a long time, I know, I, feel I know. Like. Exactly. And, and so they really they really the the small the smaller banks really got hit worse than is it a, is there a takeout play there too in terms of m a and consolidation i think it's an area that's ripe for that you know we we haven't seen as much as people had expected last year in bank consolidations and one reason was because really the the valuations the seller's expectations and the buyer's willingness to, to pay right especially when they, uh, the were, were really disconnected so now that things have come back in equilibrium i think that that the the sellers and buyers are much closer together in expectations so we would we think that bb&t deal that we saw that's earlier what i'm thinking year, of right um, uh, that, that's like probably that the beginning of something it's making everybody assess kind of where their position is and and i know that's a different scale but nonetheless quick question on something like an eagle materials it's up almost 38 percent since that christmas eve low i know you guys you like to hold for a while Right. Mm-hmm. So are, do you whittle back some of that position at, because of the gains or no, you're going to stay with it? No, at some point we will, because what we do, like in the Hodges small cap fund, when we get into periods like we had back in December or in February of last year, we'll actually shrink the number of holdings in our portfolio. So we may go from holding 50 stocks down to 35 stocks so that we can be in those high concentrated names. And then as the market right. kind of reverts back to an equilibrium, we'll broaden back out the portfolio. Just want to point out, your fund is up about 19% so far this year, puts you in the 94th percentile. That's a Hodges, a small cap fund. And the small cap index, if I look at the uh, Russell, it's up about 14%. So you're certainly beating the index. So go. far, so good. good All right. Keep it up. Eric Marshall, <laughs> it's President. March. No pressure. Director of Research, Hodges Capital Management, overseeing about $2 billion down there in Dallas, up here from the Big D in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Everybody needs education. Open University. All right. So, Carol, as we round out this first hour of the show, we've got a really interesting conversation uh, with two of our faves. One, yes. she's around here all the time because she works here. Janet Lauren, uh, endowments <laughs> reporter uh, for Bloomberg, part of our family here indeed. And Morty Shapiro, Morton Shapiro, we call him Morty. He's the president of Northwestern University out in Evanston, Illinois, where I'm told it's maybe even colder we only get is. to call him Morty because of Janet. I know. He likes I us because of Janet. That's exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Morty, great to be back with you. And your topic today, I find a fascinating one because Carol and I, I think, end up talking about this a lot, like talking about our kids, yes. you know, teenagers. What does it mean to create an educated person? So give us, give us the secret. The secret sauce. Unload it. Boy, I wish I knew that. You know, I've been a president for 19 years. You'd think I would know the answer since I get asked it a lot. But (laughs) I I think there's certain things people agree on. You want to be adept quantitatively. It's easy for me to say that since I do applied econometrics as an economist. You want to develop aesthetic appreciation. It'll make you probably better in your job and allow you to to enjoy your life more. You want to have a I would say respect for diversity, including diversity of of ideas, which isn't always easy these days. Um, You want to have tools to educate yourself over a lifetime and the humility, but a really difficult thing, and I bet you a lot of your listeners have seen it when they see the 
the students who graduate from schools like Northwestern and Williams and Dartmouth and Yale is how to address the fragility of this generation. And I say that as a parent and as an educator, there's a, you know, these are kids who uh, haven't met with a lot of failure. And then they go to Wall Street, then they go to consulting, and they go to a job like that with the attendant pressures. And all of a sudden, they're not the best and the brightest. And, you know, they get the equivalent of C's, which they've never seen in their lives. And then how do you, what do you do the next day? And that's a challenge for us, I think, in education. So how do you combat that, especially when you're talking about you want people to be educated, but you also want them to be prepared for the workforce and understand that failure is going to come? Well, it's it's not easy. I got to tell you, it really isn't. And, you know, um, you know, when you do the kind of empirical work that I do, most of the time it doesn't work, right? If you're a scientist in the STEM fields, a lot of times it doesn't work. So, you know, I, I think that academically, you know, they have those kinds of experiences, but it's not like these are kids, you know, who were getting B's and C's in high school. They don't get into Northwestern and Stanford and Princeton if they did. And they generally do really, really well here. And it's, a, it's to be honest with you, those other outcomes, except for appreciating diversity of opinion, which is pretty fraught these days, but um, those other outcomes you can do, you, you can make sure that they have distribution requirements so that they're exposed to literature and exposed to art and the humanities, they're exposed to science and computer science, etc. But boy, trying to build up that eventual perseverance that they need so they get right back up when they get knocked down is very difficult. And uh, if you or any of your uh, listeners have any great suggestions for things that we haven't tried yet. I'd love to hear them. Well, I, I say that especially as a parent as well. Well, Maria, I want to jump in as a parent as well too because yes. my daughter's been going through something. She's a, she's going to kill me, but she's not listening. I know she's not. <laughs> but, you know, great dancer. So anything at school that's dance-related, she does really well. Sports, because she focused on dance, has not done it. And she tries out yes. for things and then doesn't get on the team. And so if you're pushing kids, and I push everybody, including younger individuals who I mentor, get out of your comfort zone, try stuff. But if you constantly are getting pushed back by academia or the institution or a company, it's hard to kind of persevere. So how do you, as someone who leads a well-respected academic institution, say, hey, teachers, hey, coaches, you got to let some of those people who maybe this isn't their, you know, best skill you got to let them play. Well, I think what you do in education, there are a mixture of things that don't have cuts, and there are those that do. So if you're going to play Big Ten varsity athletics, the highest level of Division One, you got to be a superstar. Or you could maybe walk on the end of the bench, but you're probably not going to get any playing time. Now, if you're in a club sport, you know, and most schools have that, um, then you're not the highest level, but you know you're at a pretty good level. And most of those kids are most of those sports don't have cuts. And then there's intramurals that I got to play. You know, if you're not very athletic, and you know, people used to say I was small but slow. You know, as opposed to small but <laughs> fast. And it was so true. And you know, my life, I think back, boy, I lived for intramurals. It was such an important part of my life. But the good thing you said about your daughter is that. You know, when you play sports, you win and you lose. Right. And I think kids should learn to lose, right? I always find athletes much much more resilient than non-athletes, in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, and uh, go think ahead. about it academically, though, too, right? To push your kids, like, all right, you don't see yourself as whatever or you math or whatever. Like, you know, you want to push them to explore because that's how we all grow, right? So, uh, what do you? Also it's true, wanna, but you don't want yeah. it to be at personal cost. I mean, if you push them to be honest, well, you right. know, to get into one of these schools with admit rates like ours at eight percent. You know, we want people to take chances, but if they take too many chances and they fail, they don't get in. So there's a little bit of disingenuous nature of this this idea that take chances and we want people who are really broad, but we want people who are really broad and for the most part succeed. Look at Zuckerberg or take a, uh, a Steve Jobs or somebody, right, who like, yeah. you know, these, these individuals who leave well-respected institutions and then go off and start somewhere. Anyway. So yeah, but the problem is that that is those are so far on the the distribution, way over to the right. Yeah. You know, the vast majority of people who don't finish college or don't, you know, persevere in one thing or another. You know, I'm thinking Bill Gates or somebody. Or like, you know, I, most of these people just they don't become Steve Jobs. You know what I mean? Right. So it's 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 hard because we want them to be resilient. We want them to take chances. Uh, we want to you know encourage them when they fail. But it, it's very difficult. I can tell you as a university president for two decades, it's really difficult to manage all of that. And then you don't take kids with C's. How are they going to take a risk if they know they can't and they get a C and all of a sudden, wow, now Northwestern's off the table? Can- well, in, in one thing, the way you do admissions, I'll tell you the last thing I say, I know you have to go. When you're as selective as a school is like where I was, Williams, or now at Northwestern for the past decade, you can take chances on kids. And we're actually doing more of that now than we did when we were less selective. You know yeah. why? Because we have the test scores. We have the GPAs. We get the valedictorians. Now we can take more chances on kids who are really outside the box, and we're trying to do that now. Well, I think we all talk to our kids in part about like you need a story, you know, yeah, like you need yeah. to understand yeah. sort of like who you are and you need to be able to, you know, speak somewhat eloquently about where you are, you know, where you came from. No more uh, betters. And or what where was you're it? going. Yeah. More, more faster is more, <laughs> more better. Uh, Morty Shapiro, always great to catch up with you. Such a thoughtful conversation yeah. uh, as always. Uh, your book is Sense and Sensibility, What Economics Can Learn from the Humanities. We love this interdisciplinary and he uh, only joins us because of Janet Lauren, who's I the know. best as well. Endowments she reporter is. at Bloomberg News. Check her out on Twitter at Janet Lauren. Oh, yes, indeed. Um, Rockettes, check. Broadcasting rights, check. White tablecloths, well, eventually, check. This story is among the most read on the Bloomberg about the things then-president-elect Donald Trump fussed over for his inauguration, hence the big party. It's a great story written by a great reporter, Caleb Melby, back with us um, in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. So tell us about what you looked into. Yeah, so uh, this story about the inaugural uh, was generated after um, White House spokeswoman uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, said last December that Trump had nothing uh, to do with his inauguration. The planning of the inauguration was occurring at the same time as the presidential transition, picking the White House staff, everybody else. Um, uh, but that stuck. Um, that struck stuck out to a lot of our sources uh, in the campaign transition inaugural world. 
because Trump was very involved in planning this party. And we should say there's nothing like unusual or untoward about that. But but it is weird that given how involved he was, as you said, the Rockettes, the tablecloths, broadcast. He wanted rights. the Rockettes, for instance. He he really wanted the Rockettes. Uh, the Rockettes um, uh, had Weren't been announced. Weren't so sure that they wanted to be there, right? <laughs> right before Christmas. And uh, some of them protested, uh, given Trump's politics. Um, they ultimately did perform and uh, part part of the the weight behind making sure that really did happen was Trump himself saying, "Hey, I I really want them to perform in my He's a inauguration." New York guy, he loves yeah. the Rockettes. Who doesn't love the Rockettes? <laughs> they've, they've been in our studio. I got to say, every time they're here, I get a they picture. They are very impressive. Yes. I love them. Yeah. Um, so at the center of all this, or at least associated with this, by virtue of his position as the chairman of the inaugural committee, is Tom Barrack, longtime friend of the president. He introduced, keep me honest here, he introduced Ivanka, who introduced her father at the Republican uh, National Convention. I remember watching it so vividly yeah. because he was the one guy who didn't stand behind the podium. That's not that's <laughs> not how he that's not how he rolls. Like roving the stage uh, of the RNC, very dynamic guy, known uh, well to our viewers and listeners here at Bloomberg. How does he figure into this story? Yeah, uh, uh, Tom Barrick was picked uh, as chairman of the inaugural effort. And in this story in particular, uh, what's significant is like as Trump's best friend, as the head of the inaugural, um, uh, he's somebody who Trump interacts with when he wants to check in. If there's a decision to be made in the middle of a planning meeting, it's Tom Barrick who calls Trump up, uh, asks him his thoughts. Uh, Tom was also, of course, crucial during the transition period, helping to pick people who would enter the administration and make other key decisions. So he was able to interact with Trump in in that capacity as well. So what's interesting about this, like you said at the top of this, Caleb, is it's not odd or there's no problems that President Trump was very involved in it and all the details. The point is there are several investigations, federal and state, that are looking into the inaugural committee's fundraising, spending, and relationships with donors. And if President Trump was as involved as you say, whether it's tablecloths or the Rockettes, you do wonder how involved he was, ultimately, depending on the outcome of this, with the fundraising, with the spending, with the relationships with donors. Exactly. And, and, and our sources say it was communicated very clearly from Barrick uh, to the staff of the inaugural that Trump wanted to know about finances and therefore you better keep your budgets in line. Yeah. And, you know, it it is interesting. And and as you say, as you said at the top of the conversation, you know, the White House through uh, spokeswoman uh, Sarah Sanders has been very clear. You know, the president wasn't involved in this at all, which I I think anyone who's been watching Donald Trump at all for the last 20 or 30 years, even anyone who watched The Apprentice knows he's a detail guy, especially when it comes to these. He's very focused on, you know presentation he's very focused on media you know and this idea that they were negotiating uh the the potential for exclusive broadcast rights which again not that crazy in the sense that obama uh president obama former president obama had had a couple events i think broadcast exclusively but you know he was having conversations with jeff zucker this the yes. president of cnn about this right yeah a, 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 when he was trying to figure out what that he might being look president like. trump by the way yeah. yes yeah so he's having conversations with zucker about about what uh, a potential rights deal might look like and uh, the, those deals never come to fruition for this inaugural 
Um, but yeah, it's the sort of thing where, as you say, he, he's a man who knows his media, he knows his TV, he knows his parties. And uh, yeah, this was something he wanted to be involved in. And as we report, uh, was involved in. And again, we just got to wait to see what those investigations, what they ultimately find out. Absolutely. And then you do want to know really the president's involvement in all of that. Absolutely. And obviously this, again, becomes one of these follow the money stories. Yep. And you are darn good at them. Caleb Melby, financial investigations reporter for Bloomberg, here with us in our New Any York story studio. story get a picture of the Rockettes in I it, know. Caleb? They really just had you from uh, right there. They are amazing. Uh, it is try in and the- do that. Oh, I know. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, but you let me drive. Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And it is time for the drive to the close. Just about 12 minutes, almost 11 minutes left in the close of trading here on this Wednesday in the United States. Andy Capron, partner and director of research at Region Atlantic, joins us on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey. Andy, great to have you with us amid a market that, well, we're still trying to understand. I don't know if you can help us make some sense of it. What's going on out there? Well, the market certainly caught a bit in the first few weeks of the year, um, and and now we're starting to see a slightly more complicated story. I think I think the biggest story that explains the past few few months really is there's been a paradox. Um, the paradox of late 2018 was excellent results, excellent earnings, um, excellent economic data, and a market that was in freefall. Um, really, the complete opposite of that in the first few in the first few weeks of this year, which was absolutely all around bad news from just about every corner every lock that, uh, every rock that you looked under including on earnings which had been uh, so positive for all of the previous year and yet the market rallied um, I think a couple of things that were keeping the market aloft were positive news on 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 China kind of a, a, a detente in the trade war um, also some some general positivity on valuations I think investors saw that things had gone too far too fast now it's getting to be a much more complicated uh, a, a much more complicated macroeconomic story and folks are taking a pause I don't think they're they're quite as eager to to buy assets that have already bounced 10 percent from uh, from prior year's lows Andy what's the case for against of saying hey S&P 500's up almost 11 percent this year you know what I'm just gonna move this all of my assets into kind of a safer play because you know what a 10 percent year in any given year I'm pretty okay with you know that's that's a very tempting thing to do. Um, what just about the only thing that it does guarantee is that you've locked in your gains for the year, um, but you might be locking yourself out of potential future gains. But do you um, really think? Ugly- I mean, how do you see this year? Because I've heard so many different folks saying, you know what, this is probably it for the year. We're, we're going to get some volatility, um, but you're not necessarily going to move much off this mark. 
you know, there's a lot of ugliness in the world today, um, and a lot of that ugliness is macroeconomic. Some of it is uh, is making its way into earnings reports. Um, but I think the, the the bottom line. What's the bottom line? I really doubt that there will be a major market event, and by major I mean a 20% plus decline that that we've officially call a, a bear market without a corresponding economic recession. Um, and that is just not in the cards today. Um, we have seen an inflection point in some of the data. Uh, we have seen weaker PMIs, especially in China and in Europe. But we haven't actually seen recessionary data points or, or, or any major harbingers of negative economic growth in any major part of the world. Barring that, the market, especially abroad and especially in the, in the emerging markets, is incredibly well-valued, um, still offers investors a bargain, even if they're looking at double-digit gains already so far this year. You know, we were talking earlier uh, with a guest, a, a guy that we go to for a lot of uh, small cap advice, and not surprisingly, he was suggesting people buy uh, small caps. Uh, small caps, I think, is a space you like as well. Why? So small caps is a space I like, and one of the biggest reasons I like it is, it, it, in, in a sense, it became like Yogi Berra's restaurant for much of the past 10 years. So you know, Yogi Berra famously quipped, nobody goes there anymore, it's too crowded. Right. The small cap trade became much too crowded after 2008 when U.S. stocks, large caps anyway, had, had faced a lost decade. Small caps had a materially better return. People crowded into them, overpaid, and as a result, they've under-delivered. Um, so they've under-delivered so much that if over the past 10 years you've held the Russell 2000 instead of, say, the S&P 500, you've actually earned a lower return, um, which is meaningfully worse when you also consider that they're much riskier investments to make. Um, so why on earth, after 10 years of underperformance, am I recommending U.S. small cap stocks? It's because they're not like Yogi Berra's restaurant anymore. You can get a table at 8 o'clock on a Saturday night. Um, the prices are reasonable and the service is still great. Um, small cap U.S. stocks, for the first time in a very long time, offer cheaper valuations than large caps. Um, to, to, to get to that valuation figure, the biggest thing that I look at is positive price to earnings. Um, Small caps have trouble with uh, w- with a handful of smaller companies that are unprofitable, really dragging down the uh, the earnings per share at the index level. Um, but if you if you, if you if you exclude the negative earners, you're actually seeing some very compelling valuations. Andy, you make a Yogi Bear reference. You are back. You're welcome back uh, anytime. That is brilliant. Well done. Well done. I mean, small caps have definitely been uh, outperforming their larger cap brethren. We actually talked with a small cap fund manager a little bit earlier on uh, about some of the plays to come out there. And there's also that element of you know, certainly much more immune from all the all of these trade wars, right? Because of all of their uh, exposure, really, to the domestic economy. Um, where else do you want to be? So you buy small caps. What about on the fixed income side of things? So actually, I'm, I'm going to present a little bit of a barbell here. So I'm, I'm suggesting a a riskier trade on the equity side by buying small caps. I'm suggesting a slightly risk off trade um, in fixed income. So in fixed income, one thing that I think investors ought to consider is they ought to consider increasing duration. Um, what's really interesting about increasing duration is many folks view longer-term bonds as riskier bonds, and they are. Quantitatively, they're going to have bigger swings in response to, to interest rate shifts. Um, but what's interesting is if you're a balanced investor, you have some stocks and some bonds, uh, the longest-term bonds are, are going to tend to move in the opposite direction of major stock swings. So just about the only thing that would have been up for you in the last quarter of 2018 would have been a portfolio of intermediate to long-term bonds. Um, reason there's value here today is yield levels have increased a little bit from their absolute low, lows a few years ago. Um, you're now looking at yields that are 
above the long-term rate of inflation. That's meaningful. That's meaningfully good. It's also just about the only hedge that you can have in your portfolio that doesn't have a negative cost of carry. If you're buying put options, if you're sitting in cash, you're, you're, you're really giving up material amounts of return. If you're buying intermediate-term bonds instead of short-term bonds or long-term bonds instead of intermediate, you're actually picking up a little bit of yield right. and really moving the needle on the portfolio level, um, on, on the portfolio level standard deviation, on the portfolio level risk. So, Andy, uh, quickly before we let you go, do you still work on this uh, New Jersey Wealth Index? I do. So, resident of New Jersey here, Carol Masser, uh, wants to know, what's the health of the wealth in New Jersey these days? Aren't they talking like budget surplus all of a sudden? Um, so the, the the health of the wealth in New Jersey is 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 a tough number. Um, so a rising a, a rising tide does lift all ships, um, and New Jersey is no exception. The entire U.S. is doing much better today than it was just a few years ago. Um, but even in a rising tide, there can be some ships that wind up sinking. Um, New Jersey is at risk here. Um, New Jersey's biggest problem, and, and this is a problem that it shares with other states like Illinois and Connecticut, is that it has a very big underfunded pension liability. Yeah. Um, that liability, well, unfortunately, New Jersey is, is between a rock and a hard place here. Um, they, they, they've committed to it. It is, it is a contractual obligation. Um, in some ways, a state like Illinois has more flexibility. They have relatively low taxes. Yeah. New Jersey already has high taxes. Yeah. If you look at sales tax, income tax, property tax, we're, we're, we're market beating um, on a lot of right. metrics. Andy, we got to run, but we really appreciate your time. Andy Kaplan, Covert Region Atlantic. You are listening to Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.